Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Melissa Lima, your North Coast and Organic Field Services rep, bringing you this week's episode, in which we are pleased to welcome Tiffany LaMandola, our contract economist with Blimling, who discusses the U.S. Dairy Production Report in today's market update. We're also so grateful to Bill Sheik of the Dairy Institute of California, who sat down with Anya Radabaugh, Western United Dairy CEO, to talk about the importance of the standards of identity and what a recent lawsuit in California may mean for the dairy industry as a whole. Without further ado, we'll roll right in. Thanks for joining us. With our state facing a record drought, California's dairy families are meeting the challenge of getting the most out of every drop of water. According to UC researchers, California's dairy families will use 25% less water this year than last year. Over the past two decades, 50% less. How'd we do it? Resilience, innovation, technology. In fact, when it comes to water conservation, California dairy families lead the world. We're using recycled water, ensuring sustainability, we're irrigating our farmland more efficiently, doing more with less. And nearly half of what we feed our animals comes from nutritious, natural crop byproducts, which require no additional water at all. Dairy Families and the California Cattle Council are doing our part. We'll continue to feed California sustainably and using our water efficiently. Hi folks, hope you had a great week. I'm gonna focus uh, today's update on one big announcement and one big report we got. Uh, markets were pretty uh, calm overall. First uh, milk production report on Thursday came in pretty close to pre-report expectations. July uh, up, output was up 2% year over year uh, across the US. We saw cow numbers decline for the second month in a row down 3,000 head from June. Um, however, the nation's herd is still uh, at 128,000 more cows uh, than, this, than this time last year. That ranks as the third largest year-over-year surplus in the past decade and means that we still have quite a bit of cow power around to fuel growth in the months ahead. Um, slaughter rates are running a little bit heavier, so uh, suspect that we might see declines again in the months ahead. Uh, but it will take some time to whittle down that uh, pretty large buffer. Uh, definitely the summer heat took the roll, uh, toll up uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Output was down 1.2% for the month, and that is the largest decline we've seen since 2017 for that region. And California output got hit a bit too, but we were down just 0.7%, um, although that is the biggest shortfall we've seen in two years. Areas like the Midwest up 5.3% and Mideast up 4.1% uh, continue to be the big, uh, the big output gains, uh, as well as the Southwest up 3.3%. We also um, got a read on New Zealand's uh, production for June up 1.7%. Expectations are that that region will start off um, on pretty solid footing. Uh, the next was a big announcement we also got on Thursday. USDA um, uh, doled out a little bit more detail what they're calling Market Volatility Assistance Program. Uh, essentially, they're going to uh, make payments to dairy producers um, who received a lower value for their products during the market abnormalities caused by the pandemic. Um, this is going to be fairly laser-focused on Class 1 sales. 
and producers will get payments up to 80% of the revenue dis- difference per month, up to 5 million pounds uh, marketed on fluid sales for July through December of 2020. Essentially, the amount will equal the difference between the old higher of class one mover and the current um, average of multiplied by 80%. Um, Narrowing it a little bit more, ultimately, um, the payments will vary widely by region, but producers in high class one utilization regions are going to receive a lot more than um, than those areas with fewer milk sales. And there is a cap on production. So at a high level, we think this means Smaller producers, maybe around 200 cows in the southeast, northeast, and mid-east will see the most tangible financial impact. Um, You know, as a general rule, that puts more money against supply and um, encourages additional milk production. That's definitely not bullish. But at the same time, the limited scale and regional distribution, um, we don't see that being a super big game changer in a bearish sense. Um, rough estimates, and we're still waiting for um, all the details, but would peg California estimated uh, payments at about 20 cents a hundredweight um, for those producers particip- participating in the pool um, the second half of last year. Uh, more details on that will be forthcoming. Please reach out with any questions. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pg.com slash safety. Well, welcome, Bill. Um, this is Anya Rabba. I've got Bill Sheik, who's the executive director of the Dairy Institute of California with me today. We're going to talk about a nagging issue that's been on the heels of the dairy industry now for some decades. And um, it has to do with a small creamery out of Petaluma, California, named Miyoko's Creamery. It is a vegan-based alternatives foods creamery. And they recently were in the news um, after filing a lawsuit against the California Department of Food and Agriculture that um, essentially asked for their definitions of vegan butter to stand whereas the California Department of Food and Agriculture was asking the company to stick with what are called standards of identity. And Miyoko's recently won that case at the state. Um, She was defended by the Animal Legal Defense Fund in the U.S. District Court in San Francisco. But we thought it was really important today to talk about the reason CDFA went after Miyoko's, which was a little counterintuitive to some of the press that's been around this, which has kind of indicated that Miyoko's was a small creamery, small business being beat up by the big boogeyman, the government and the big dairy industry who celebrated this lawsuit. But in fact, what we're asking and what the state was asking Miyoko's to adhere to were these things called standards of identity. And so I've asked Bill to be with us today because he is somewhat of an expert on the matter. Um, although he would disagree, but um, in the past, Annie Akmudi, um, our, our uh, former economist and others have sought Bill's expertise in this area in, in, in the form of white papers. So Bill, thanks for coming with us today, coming on the show today. Um, I wanted to see if you wanted to give a little bit of background on why standards of, ident- standards of identity are so important and maybe a little bit more information about this Miyoko's case. Sure. 
So standards of identity are something that exists in state statute and also in federal, the federal code of regulations. So at the state level, California has some of its own standards of identity and most dairymen will know that you know we have a unique fluid milk standard of identity that's not the same as the federal standard of identity. And we have a few other special to California standards of identity. I think there's one on dairy beverage that's, uh, that's unique. Um, but most of the dairy product standards of identities are, are, they're in the state code, but they reference the federal code of regulation. So they're federally established standards of identity. And the origin of standards of identity for dairy products and indeed, you know, a lot of food products uh, goes way back to the beginning of the 20th century and um, has its origins in the Pure Food Act, which um, we had a, an industry that was pretty much a wild west uh, uh, food industry where um, it was a let the buyer beware kind of mentality where um, food manufacturers, if you can even call them that, uh, purveyors of food, uh, would advertise a food as being something, some, some product that consumers were familiar with. And it may have ingredients that were non-food ingredients and some of which were toxic to consumers. And this was a problem and it was pervasive uh, in the 1800, late 1800s and early part of the 20th century. Which did, it, led did it come up with the terms, is that how we came up with the term snake oil? Yeah, 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 yeah. The idea that, you know, here, I've got this great product that's going to improve your health. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's got stuff that makes you sick in it, right? Yep. So that, um, that was the problem. That was the, the sort of public interest that the federal government was trying to address with the Pure Food Act. And that led to, you know, the creation of the FDA and, and the system that we have today. And some of the standards of identity for dairy products, because dairy products have been around a long time, those standards of identity go pretty far back in terms of uh, when they were first put in, put on the books. So in a case, this particular case with Miyoko's um, kitchen, um, the issue was her vegan butter, a plant-based butter. And um, she uses the word butter on the, on the label. And, you know, butter is required to be essentially 80% milk fat in the United States. Well, there's no milk fat in Miyoko's products. So um, the California Department of Food and Agriculture is the agency that's sort of tasked with enforcing state regulations, which in some cases are the federal regulations. And um, so they have a group at the uh, Dairy Food Safety Branch that enforces on labeling. So this was a case of if it's not, if, if you're calling it butter and it's not meeting the standard of identity for butter, this is an inaccurate label. That's the position that they took. And um, so they met with Miyoko's staff or her personally, I'm not sure, but probably told her she needed to make some changes to her labels in order to be in compliance. And uh, it appears that that was the case. And rather than 
um, work with CDFA to come up with a compliant label that they would accept. And I should say, this is not something just plant-based foods face. I mean, sure. we, our, our, our members, of course, are processors and manufacturers of dairy products in California. And, um, you know, we have to provide labels to CDFA and ensure we're in compliance. And sometimes they'll come back and say, you can't make that claim. You know, that's not accurate or something. And so our members may have already printed their labels. They have to reprint their labels. That's just something that happens from time to time. Um, but the, you know, the key standard for FDA, uh, FDA issues a lot of guidance on labeling. And guidance is kind of like, I view it as like a safe harbor for your label. Uh, the guidance from FDA, if you don't want to be sued, uh, if you can demonstrate that you're in compliance with FDA guidance, you've got a, a little bit of an argument to make if someone says it's misleading because of saying we, you know, we're in compliance with FDA guidance. Um, so there are a lot of products that don't have standards of identity, though. And so the, the, the broader question there is, is, is the label accurate or is it misleading? So that's sort of the, the bottom yeah. line that we work for on, lab, on labeling is, is it accurate or is it misleading? And, uh, and so I think that was probably in some ways at the heart of the case with Miyoko. Well, but I guess, so then I'm gonna, and I'm, you know, Obviously, I want standards of identity to be well represented so that our farmers can be appropriately paid for their products. And when you mentioned the 80% butter fat um, or milk fat, excuse me, the, these are serious issues, especially when it comes to broaching international trade, trade agreements. There's, um, I believe, uh, a bit of a, of a contest right now between the United States and Canada um, standards of identity are not at the heart of that, but they're basically calling something, you know, a duck when it's not a duck. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, for decades, the dairy industry successfully was able to get FDA to clearly identify deceptive marketing around margarine. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I guess I'm at a loss for how vegan butter, um, is a different conversation than the margarine conversation. And that's a good question. Um, and, you know, you and I will probably have one opinion on this. And <laughs> apparently, Miyoko and uh, the, the judge in this case had a different opinion. Um, the question of whether the label is accurate or accurately describes the product or misleading um, we can view that differently. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the question was phrased along free speech grounds. Yeah. Miyoko's complaint. And my understanding, looking at some of the other cases that were cited in some of the press that came out with a decision, other um, groups who are making, I would call them dairy analogs, they're products that you know resemble dairy products, but uh, they're not dairy based in nature. Um, so this could be something like soy milk or yeah. coconut milk or uh, mm -hmm. vegan butter, right? Um, the, the argument she was making is that nobody's confused by this label. 
because on her label, it says right above butter, it says, uh, I believe the term is cultured vegan butter made from plants. I'm looking, I'm looking for the label. Okay, yes. Cultured vegan butter made from plants is what it says. But here's the thing. I mean, the FDA guidance says, yeah, you can have a label and it can say those things, but if, if it's going to be not misleading, a lot of times you need to have certain font sizes. Mm. The, the largest product definition on her label is butter. It's a bolder font with the letters spread farther apart. And then over top, it says cultured vegan. And underneath it says in an italic script made from plants. But the thing that stands out, if you look at the label quickly, is butter. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm just speculating here because, you know, I don't communicate with CDFA on legal matters. Uh, but my, <laughs> my, my guess is that they were probably aware of FDA guidance around font sizes. And their thinking was probably that, that's somewhat confusing. You know, somebody who's looking really quickly at a label and going, oh, that's, you know, that's for me. They may just see the butter and may not closely read the label. Um, the judge in this case took a different view. He basically said that the term cultured vegan uh, next to butter made it clear that the product is not real dairy butter. And he noted that there are other cases where um, plant-based products have been, uh, other, other decisions where plant-based products um, have been allowed to stand if they had a modifier. So soy milk, for example, sure. is one where, um, you know, Plaintiffs who have sued that that's misleading have been unable to be successful so far in, in winning that case because judges tend to view it somewhat liberally in the sense that, uh, okay, it says soy milk, that's not milk. Uh, you know, that's how they look at it. Sure. We can argue that it's misleading, but um, so far judges haven't been convinced that it is. And I think one of the issues we can point to standards of identity in the Code of Federal Regulations as a reason why that shouldn't be allowed and that's that's a false claim uh, and maybe you shouldn't be allowed to use that term. But um, judges are increasingly taking the case uh, and making the argument that um, the, you, the government has to have a legitimate public interest reason to curtail mm -hmm free speech, even free commercial speech. So, you know, I said, well, the standards of identity evolved out of a genuine bona fide public interest reason. There was stuff in the food that wasn't safe, right? So that's, that's part of the heritage. But, um, you know, the judge in this case argued that um, because of the cultured vegan terminology on, on top of the butter that people understood, a reasonable person, reasonable person would understand that this is not dairy butter and wouldn't be misled by it. They would understand that it's, um, it's a butter substitute, which, which I 
maybe that's true. And if they had cultured vegan butter substitute on there, all in the same font, I think they, honestly, I think they'd have a really strong case, um, even stronger than, than apparently the judge thought the case was. But, um, but, but I, I think that's the, that's the direction we're going. And um, the fact that, you know, the government, federal government had a, a legitimate public interest reason to curtail or constrain free speech, free commercial speech in the early 1900s, apparently they're not buying that that's indefinite. And he bought, uh, and the judge in this case bought Miyoko's argument that language is evolving and butter is describing a certain food experience, not necessarily a product. Right. So that that well, is kind of the direction he went with his decision. I, you know, uh, it's, it's really, I'll just, as a, as a side snark, it's nice that the Animal Legal Defense Fund finally agrees with us that we treat our cows well enough to offer the product name butter uh, universally. And it's nice to see that, that there's some universal acceptance of um, how wonderful the dairy industry is and how wonderful the product is. I'm glad everyone wants to imitate it. Um, but the snark aside, I, I, I can't help but be concerned that this additional category where you've got a very crowded, let's just use butter as an example, short store shelf already, it, it, you know, the competition drives the prices down. And in addition, I do worry about the consumer who wasn't really reading the label correctly, buys it and says this tastes like crap and it gives dairy a bad reputation. You know, those are, those are just some things that stick in my craw. As I think about what the next phase of this evolution and this conversation is, I want us to be true stand-up competitors and out-compete our, you know, our competition. And that, I think there's a lot of good cases to be made there by our processors and and the product itself is wonderful, which is why they want to imitate it. But I can't help but worry about these kinds of moments and these precedents and our price being driven down because of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a loss of demand, right? People right. maybe used to used to choose real butter are now choosing a butter substitute. Um and you know, some of that's happening because there these are people who actually do for whatever reason, want to consume a, a vegan product or a vegetarian product. Um, and, you know, maybe they would be consuming something else. Maybe they'd be consuming margarine if they weren't consuming sure. know, butter. That's true. Of, of these vegan butters. But um, I think we as an industry, uh, we're slow to react to this threat. And there's a, a good reason why. Um, back when I worked at Purdue University, I was taking students to a food at the FMI Food Marketing Institute food show in Chicago, and they had a section of the trade show where um, they would have new companies that were bringing new products onto the market. And a lot of these were small companies. And I went there and I remember I'd never tasted soy milk before. And, you know, the Midwest where I was living at the time was big on soybeans. So <laughs> um, there was a company from the Midwest that was selling a soy milk. And I remember I, you know, went to their booth and tried their product and 
you know, the, the chocolate was drinkable, you know, there's a lot of sugar in it and, and chocolate flavor. So it, it was uh, not bad, but the plane was downright awful, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and, you know, if you look at the beginning of meat analogs, vegetarian meat analogs, they were pretty awful. I went through a period where um, I was advised to kind of cut back on meat for a while back in the really early 2000s by my doctor. And um, so I started using some of these meat analogs and they were just downright awful. Terrible. Really bad. Well, 20 years later, um, the food scientists and people who make these products have gotten a lot better at it. And yeah. um, I still don't think they hold a candle to the real stuff, but they're a lot better than they were. And they will probably continue to get better sure. as time goes by. So, um, well, when you add enough snake oil to something, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's bound to change Modified the product. Modified food starch <laughs> and flavorings and lecithin and all kinds of emulsifiers. But, um, you know, that was back in the day, I don't think we viewed it as a threat and didn't react yeah. as an industry very uh, forcefully. And so it's sort of like the horse is out of the barn and we've had these products around now for 20, 30 years. Um, and so I, I think it's a harder case that consume, to make the case that consumers are confused than it would have been uh, some years ago. So- gotcha. We are, you know, we have an uphill battle, I think, as an industry. And, you know, I was on a call discussing this issue with a broader national group. And I remember um, an attorney there saying, you know, the question was, well, you know, in Europe, they don't allow these, you know, meat and dairy terms to be used with plant-based foods. And his point was, well, they don't have a bill of rights that protects free speech either. And that, that is, that will be our challenge as an industry. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think moving forward, and, and we've talked about this off and on, but when California's dairy industry voted to leave the state system, there were a number of things that, you know, we left on the table, particularly CDFA's oversight capacity for handling these kinds of interpretive issues. Mm -hmm. This was a legal battle if I had to hazard a guess, was not budgeted for in CDFA's legal coffer. Um, it, it was probably the attorney general defending CDFA's decision to enforce the labeling. But moving forward, I'm, I'm trying to think about, you know, are there other ways that we can buffer this conversation? Because leaving the state system, you know, obviously there are existing challenges and we've now walked into new challenges, but I think that because this case is evidently becoming more of a free speech, a free speech case than it is a food safety case, which, you know, one could potentially argue either way, but this was decided in the U.S. District Court in San Francisco, which firmly keeps it in that federal space. Do you expect or you think there's ramifications and or other um, is, are there appeals in the process? Are there things that people are going to look at to maybe help CDFA continue to enforce these, these labeling um, guidelines and standards of identity? Because I think, and I meant what I said moving forward, as we have USDA you know, trying to optimize trade agreements, um, trying to optimize 
you know, tariff quotas and things like that, I, I feel like the more these lines get blurred, the harder those lines are going to be to draw in the future. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question. And I've been, obviously, since the decision came out, I've been thinking about it um, as well uh, in terms of the state how will the state respond and how will it change enforcement on labeling and standards of identity? And um, I think, you know, dairy products are still going to be held to a standard of identity if there are no modifiers. So for example, that's, see, that's the thing is we're held to a certain standard and yeah. you, you know, your processors pay my guys a certain way based on all of those um, formulas. And so I, I just, it's, it's, it feels very prejudicial yeah. in the onset that, you know, if you've got an alternative out there in the market, you can pretty much label it whatever you want. It is true. I mean, there are, even within the dairy category, there are non-standardized products. Uh, pizza cheese, if you label something pizza cheese, it does not follow a particular standard of identity. There's a standard of identity for mozzarella. There's a standard right. of identity for cheddar and there's standards of identity for other cheeses. But if you label something as pizza cheese, it can have, um, you know, casein in it. It can have, you know, it can be a blend of cheese and casein, something that um, might be a cheaper alternative to the dairy product and not, you know, not holding to any standard. So these non-standardized plant-based products um, are not going to be helped to the standard clear if this court decision holds over the long run is not challenged in another in another jurisdiction or wouldn't be challenged. I'm saying if the concept is not challenged sure. in another jurisdiction with a with a compelling argument about a public interest in preserving these standards and accurate labeling. So I, I, you know, it's not helpful that FDA never really fully weighed in on this. And, yeah. you know, that's going to uh, make it a, a tougher case. But um, I do think for, for CDFA, again, I don't know what they're going to do and what posture they're going to take. But if they want to minimize their legal budget, uh, I don't see them taking on yeah. other plant-based uh, uh, products uh, regarding labeling as long, you know, if there's any kind of modifier on there, you know, if they try to call it right, just butter, you know, with no disclaimer, no modifier saying it's vegan or which could be next, whatever, um, then maybe they'll enforce. But I, I think they would uh, not want to invite another lawsuit um, going after a plant-based product that happens to use a dairy term on their label. Yeah. Um, the other question is, um, if free speech is the, the you know, winning argument, um, can they even enforce uh, against certain claims that dairy product manufacturers might want to make right. on their label? It's if, true. If they're accurate, I mean, that's the issue. Are they accurate? Uh, are they misleading? I guess they, it's a really a negative question. If they're not misleading, then free speech would argue that, you know, you, you have no reason to deny their ability to use it. So, well, and then and I think that that kind of goes to the next um, evolution of the question in my mind. And, you know, you are an esteemed economist, um, you know, many esteemed economists, but I think 
if I had to be, and I represent the farmer's perspective, clearly I have a bias here, but you're looking at a product or a set of products that will take and compete in shelf space areas that are not regulated. They are not capped or, um, for example, there's no systematized federal order Mm -hmm. that dictates prices to these products. And yet they're competing with highly regulated standards of identity on the dairy side and our product, you know, we, we have in product pricing, we've got formulas that go into that often set by USDA based on a number of, I won't bore the audience that doesn't know about dairy pricing, but you see what I'm saying? So it's, it's a very unfair dynamic that's being hoisted up here where we cannot pass our costs and such onto the consumers for, for, there's a lot of good historical reasons there, but Miyoko's can charge, you know, twelve ninety nine a pound mm-hmm. and have no justification or no limit to how she does that. So those are, and I'm just thinking long-term, if we don't, as an industry, figure out a way to balance this conversation, how do we allow a healthy competition? I don't want to prohibit consumers from those choices. That's, that's all fine. But we are setting up an automatically, you know, a terribly unfair environment uh, mm-hmm. for the farmers of dairy products. Yeah. I, and and I, I hear what you're saying, and uh, I wish I could say uh, more to uh, allay that concern. I think it's a, it's a real concern, but here's the, here's the one thing that is some good news. Okay. And that is that our products are great value. <laughs> it's true. Highly nutritious. And, you know, maybe it's an issue of of breaking out of rather than milk is milk and butter is butter and cheese is cheese, breaking out of of the reliance of saying something like cheese to communicate a whole package of product. Maybe we need to really look at how we market that nutritional package, how we market the clean label that we have with our products, you know, cause you look at those plant-based ones and, you know, gosh, it's going to take you, you know, 10 minutes to read through all the ingredients on there as opposed to simple, clean, natural labels that you tend to get in dairy. So I think, hmm. I think the challenge for us is how to take what we know is good in our products and superior to all these other yeah. products from a nutrition standpoint, and frankly, from a taste standpoint still. Um, how do we do yeah. that? How do we market it? How do we, how do we uh, find the messaging that communicates what's in it, You know what the experience is going to be um, for the consumer that they're looking for in a way that's meaningful to them? And that's, yeah. that's gonna be our challenge. Well, and just on the on the theme of good news, we are also talking about what is it less than three percent of the total consumption portfolio mm-hmm. is in these products, and so it it is a bit of a, a balance the outrage um, mm-hmm. with the facts on the ground. So I, I appreciate that perspective, um, but this you know it, it never is helpful for me representing farmers to see in the press, get it so wrong. Like it's the great Satan, the dairy industry trying to take down some poor little innocent, you know, small business who's just trying to survive when it just looks like one big publicity stunt to me. I mean, nobody from the dairy industry was quoted in these articles. No one was 
asked for comment. It was just like a move cheered by the dairy industry. Those it, it, it never feels good. It never looks good. And it's like the dairy's, you know, dairy's just out to get, you know, our vegan competitors. And that's absolutely not what happened here. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't expect that there's nothing on the docket to um, suggest that our, our ongoing strategy either on the ground or at the processing level is, is going to include that strategy. So I guess I'm just like, man, <laughs> yeah, I get frustrated that, you know, no matter what we do, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's just this, this interpretation that we're some mega companies trying to go after the small guys. Mm-hmm. And, and that very much came through when this lawsuit was first filed in February, 2020 um, against CDFA. Uh, it, it really, you know, I heard from the speaker's office, you know, what's the dairy industry doing attacking this poor little innocent, you know, vegan cheesemaker. It's like, wait, what, what, who, who, what are we talking about here? We didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And I well, think and that, this, that, was, that yeah, this, as you may remember, this was the second court issue That's right. That's uh, right. in New York state, uh, uh, a consumer filed a lawsuit saying, um, she was misrepresenting um, the product by trading on dairy's superior uh, nutritional package and essentially implying that her product was nutritionally equivalent. So uh, that that lawsuit was voluntarily dismissed. So both sides apparently agreed to something. Um, I do remember that. Yeah, I, I know what they agreed to. Miyoko would move out to California and leave New York alone, but that's a theory. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's the rumor. Um, but, but uh, you know, I, I was, I, you know, the rumor was that she did pull product there uh, out of that market, but I'm not, you know, I don't know exactly what the agreement was because it was private and confidential, but. Uh, um, well, we can speculate. I um, we're going to follow up on this particular interview you and I are having with um, a couple of our farmers who were approached by Miyoko's over the last couple of weeks to transition their cows, and I wanted to give our listeners a good perspective on what went down there. I think that um, you know I don't want to give it too much airtime, but I do think it's an interesting strategy that uh, you know dairy is so bad we're, yeah, we're trying to imitate it we are imitating it we're successfully imitating it um and some of their ideas and concepts around land conversion um from you know animal agriculture to plant-based agriculture is is not practical i, I almost said a bigger insult but um it's not practical with with what's what on ground financial realities are yeah, and I don't know enough about Miyoko's supply chain, but you know when you talk about sustainability in the broader sense, in terms of communities, uh, health of the workers, um, you know there is an issue with uh, cashew harvesting. That's uh, right. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure how she, how her cashews are harvested or what her <laughs> suppliers are, but uh, I don't know that that question's been asked. Well that hopefully the same scrutiny will eventually apply to all. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Um, I really enjoy learning from you. I think that you have a wealth of information and resources, and I appreciate what you do on behalf of the processors, your members, uh, to kind of help lift our farmers up together. And uh, can't thank you enough for your time today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Talk to you soon, Bill. All right. Take care. Thank you.
Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Dairy members, Rochelle with Western United Dairy Sunland Chinos Unidos de California. We are aware that we have many dairies needing employees to fill open job spots. I bring this message to you to hope every member understands it is not getting any easy finding people and we ask to be patient and you will have someone hiring in no time. We are doing our best to help you dairy members stay productive and happy. So just keep in mind we do the advertising for free and help any of you possible employees. Our phone number is 209-527-6453 or via email r-a-s-h-e-l-l at wudairies.com. Thank you and have a nice day. Did you know that you can turn your dairy manure into cash? Bennett Environmental is offering above-ground dairy digesters at no cost to you. These systems can also remove nitrates from your lagoons to help you comply with water board regulations. Our proven above-ground technology will generate income for your dairy into the foreseeable future. Because we truck the renewable natural gas off-site, your dairy can profit regardless of your location. Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. Thanks again for joining us for today's episode of Seen and Heard, and a special thanks to Tiffany LaMandola, Anya Radobot, and Bill Sheik. For comments, content requests, or questions, please reach out to mlema at wudairies.com or D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. We'd really appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to Seen and Heard on your favorite listening platform. And in the meantime, have a great week, everyone. While West United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the West United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies generous business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com. Thank you.